This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the library. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of uh, the librarians. And uh, we're happy to host our uh, author's uh, uh, discussion today. Um, this is actually sponsored by the bookstore, so I want to make sure I give Kosh and Lynn credit for uh, do all their hard work. I just did the chair setup, so. Um, but we are more than uh, happy to have uh, Gary W. Moore visiting us today. Um, I would say that uh, Gary W. Moore is truly a Renaissance man. He is the CEO of uh, Covenant Air and Water, a motivational speaker, an accomplished musician, and of course a novelist. Um, all accomplishments that, uh, if I could do one of the four, would be um, impressive to do all is, is saying a lot. Um, he's here today to discuss his book, Playing with the Enemy, which will be made into a major motion picture within the next year or so. Um, without further ado, I welcome Gary W. Moore to the microphone. Thank you. Wow, I'm going to take you along as my publicist. So that's, uh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, it's a... Uh, it's a funny thing about time. Time is something that uh, can never be regained. If you spent money to come in here, which you didn't, uh, if you didn't like what I had to say, you could, you'd always figure out a way to earn your money back. Um, if you've given possessions or wealth or lost possessions or wealth, there's always a way to, to gain that back. But time is something you can never, ever regain. The time you spend here with me today is something that, that, that you know, is either lost or invested, and I'm going to do my very best to make sure that the time that you've spent here today is worthwhile. So, so I take it very seriously. I'm very conscious of your time, and so I thank you for being here. I really do. I'm here to tell you a story today. And so I'm going to ask you to suspend belief for a few minutes. I want you to forget that you're in this, this beautiful facility. I mean, I, I try, I'm in libraries all over the country. I'm in schools all over the country. You truly are blessed with, it, with, it, with a great school in a, in a uh, beautiful, you know, beautiful setting here. But I'm going to ask you to forget that you're here for a minute. I'm going to take you back to deep southern Illinois uh, around the turn of the century. I'm going to take you back to a little place called Franklin County. Now, I, I, I guess I should ask, first of all, has anybody here ever heard of a little town called Sesser, Illinois? S-E-S-S-E-R. You've heard of Sesser? You ever been to Sesser? Okay. Well, the fact that you have heard of Sesser places you in the probably .0001% of people living in the United States. The average person has never heard of Sesser. And, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Sesser afterwards because Sesser is enjoying a, a tourism business now as a result of this book, which is really kind of bizarre when, when you hear the story. But take it back to Southern Illinois. First of all, let me tell you that Southern Illinois and Northern Illinois share nothing but the same taxing area. Uh, it's a world of difference. When you get when you get south of Effingham, Illinois, you know you would swear you were in Alabama because the accents become so thick that it's almost hard to understand them. You, you you go you go south of Mount Vernon, Illinois, and you really think that you should have a passport because it is like you're in a whole different world. Well, when you look at Illinois and how it kind of comes down to a point, if you go to the middle of that little point, that's where Sesser, Illinois is. Now, the other thing I should tell you is when you look at social and economic maps of the United States, southern Illinois, that lower 20%, is actually considered Appalachian America. Now, when you think about Appalachian America, most people think of deliverance. They think of the little guy playing the banjo and, you know, people living in old broken down buses and things like that. Well, when you get to deep southern Illinois, quite frankly, it's, it's still kind of that way. It's the most uneducated part of the country. It is, it is still, most people there are living in poverty. There are no employment opportunities. And so people really never leave. Now, if you go back even further and you go back to the time I'm going to tell you about, it's even worse. So let's go back. I'm going to take you back to, let's say, 1890. In 1890, there was nothing in southern Illinois. Nothing. And when I say nothing, there was nothing. It was very uninhabitable, very hilly, very, very foresty. Um, the ground there was unsuitable for, uh, for really crops because it was very, very rocky, and it wasn't very fertile. You know, we think of Illinois as being fertile farm ground, but it, that is only as far as the glaciers 
stopped. Glacier stopped around Effingham, and it's completely flat between here and Effingham, and all of a sudden you get to Effingham, it becomes very hilly, because that's where the glacier stopped. Well, the glacier made the deposits of minerals that make the farm ground here. You can almost, if you're flying over southern Illinois during planting season, you can see a change in the soil. It goes from black in Effingham to a grayish red south of that. So it, it's, it's a different world in many, many ways. So there was no farming there. Because there was no farming there, there were really no people there. It was, it was totally uninhabited. South of the Ohio River is where Kentucky started, and Kentucky was popular. There was nothing in southern Illinois until one day somebody discovered coal sitting on the ground in Franklin County, Illinois. Well, let me tell you something. Discovering coal in 1900 or 1890 would be like discovering an oil well in your backyard today. The world ran on coal. It heated our homes. It provided our energy. It provided our transportation. Nothing happened without coal. Everything was coal. So, so the idea that all of a sudden there might be coal in southern Illinois was earth-shattering. State of Illinois, the government, didn't know what to do, so they contacted the Old Ben Coal Company in Liverpool, England, and said, we think we have a huge coal deposit. Would somebody come look? The geologists, and of course geology was much different then than it is now, came across and said, wait a minute. We think this may be the largest coal deposit we've ever seen, and certainly the largest in the United States. So they, made it, they negotiated a deal with the state of Illinois to mine the coal. And it all sounded great. It was wonderful. So they realized to mine coal, you have to have miners, and nobody lives in southern Illinois. So Cesar, Illinois, this, which wasn't there, became the first Illinois' first planned community. In, in about 1902, they, they, brought, they had an architect, and it was a British architect. And you'll know when you go to Cesar, it has British influences in this little poverty-stricken area. It has an opera house. It has things, it has moldings in the building that look very European. Well, as a British architect came, they laid out, they, what they figured was they needed 3,000 people, families and everything, 3,000 people to mine the coal. So they built a town that had housing, infrastructure, stores, opera house, everything for 3,000 people, and nobody lived there. Once the town was just about complete, they started running ads all over the country and in Eastern Europe where you know, people were flocking to the United States for jobs, and they were experienced coal miners there. They said, come to this little town in Southern Oil, Frank County, and mine the coal. So from zero population to 3,000, like that, this is a thriving community. It got its name Cesar, strangely enough, because, well, the, the architect said, well, what are you going to name the town? They said, well, we'll name it after the first baby born in the town. Well, the first, first baby born was born to the Bates family. So they named the town Batesville. They sent in the incorporation papers to Springfield, and, and they came back quickly and said, wait a minute, there's already a Batesville. And they said, well, what's the baby's first name? They said, well, the baby's first name is Cesar. So the town became Cesar, named after Cesar Bates. Well, Cesar was thriving. He was booming. Believe it or not, this town that only one of you has ever heard of and nobody else has, Cesar, Illinois, in 1908, was the fifth largest town in the state. It was booming. It was thriving. Great things were happening. Coal was being mined. And then all of a sudden, in Chicago was their, no, their number one customer. The majority of the coal burned in Chicago was, was from Cesar. And all of a sudden, people in Chicago started dying. They didn't know why. They're dropping over dead. Young, old, didn't matter. University of Illinois sent scientists and professors up there and said, why are these people dying? And what they found was they all had one thing in common. They all had some type of either permanent or temporary respiratory illness. Some had bad chest colds, and they died. They couldn't figure out why. And after a year, one of the professors looked up at the sky and saw the yellow haze hanging over Chicago and said, it's the coal. And what they found is the coal from southern Illinois has a toxic amount of sulfur in it. So, by 1925, this thriving town all of a sudden lost its only customer, which is the city of Chicago. Like that, it was shut down. Like that, the coal mine stopped. By 1929, this town of 3,000 people now had less than 700 people in it. Then the Great Depression happened, and that just added insult to injury. Cesar was gone. Now, imagine where the town that you live in, Palos Heights, Palos Park, Palos Hill, whatever we have here, Imagine the city of Chicago. Imagine any town where all of a sudden one day the full population's there, and within a year, almost three-fourths of the population is gone. 
It's like the Twilight Zone. Homes were deserted. People just up and left. The only people who stayed were the people who didn't have resources to leave. And those people didn't know what to do. My grandfather was one of them. My grandfather had more education than any more in history he'd ever had. He had been to the second grade. And that was the most, and if they trace my family tree, that's the highest educated more to that point, Appalachian American. My grandmother, who was just soft the earth, wonderful woman, she'd never been to school, but I mean, what do women need an education for? I mean, they have babies and cook food, right? Well, that was the thought in Southern Illinois at the time. And, and that's the way it was. Well, by 1940, we're going to fast forward to 1940, this town is, is basically a ghost town, and the only thing left there is pig farming. And what they did, my grandfather was one of them, he lived in this little neighborhood, and the homes on each side of them were deserted. There were two empty homes on one side, one on the other side, and the bank, they were just deserted. And so what he did was he took some chicken wire, wrapped it around all four homes, the two empty ones on his side, his home, and he bought some baby pigs. He took the doors off the empty homes. Those became the dwellings for the pigs, and he started a pig farm. And that's how he made his living. Well, he ended up having seven kids there. Gene Moore was one of them. Gene Moore was my father. Gene had a passion for baseball. Now, if you're below the age of 50, you may not understand this, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to share this with you. This country loved baseball. It lived and breathed baseball. Baseball, they say, is a national pastime, and the kids they say, I don't understand that. What do you mean it's a national pastime? It's one of 50 sports that I can play in school, and it's kind of a slow, boring game. In 1940, baseball was life. There's only two things that people entertained themselves in 1940. One was baseball. Number two was horse racing. And horse racing was just as big. I mean, you know, it was, people were passionate, and they knew the names of horses like we know the names of athletes today. If you really want to taste of that, read, read the book Seabiscuit. You know, and you find out the passion and love people had because there were only two forms of entertainment. You worked, you raised a family, and you paid attention to horse racing, you paid attention to baseball. Well, the folks in Cesar were very, very poor. They were 90 miles southeast of, of St. Louis, and they were therefore Cardinal fans. But, you know, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have the money to go to a Cardinal game. Most of the people who lived in Franklin County time had never been out of the confines of Franklin County. So they had their team, and they lived and died based on the Egyptians. The Egyptians were Cesar's team. They were the pride and joy of Southern Illinois. And you may say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. This uneducated place, they've got a team called the Egyptians. What's that all about? Well, let me tell you. The lower 20% of Illinois is fondly referred to as Little Egypt. You know, Southern Illinois University, the team name is the Salukis, which is an Egyptian dog. Um, you, you drive through Southern Illinois and you look and you say, okay, there's the Little Egyptian Animal Clinic, there's Little Egyptian Plumbing and Heating, there's Little Egypt this. And you think everything is Little Egypt. They refer to themselves as Egyptians. And think, why is that? Their, their heritage isn't Egyptian. Well, when I was writing this book and I knew that I had to find the name of this team because somebody, somebody's going to say, uh, excuse me, why would they name the team the Egyptians? I needed to know, and I didn't. So I started looking around, talking to people, and I found out nobody in Southern Illinois knew. And they all would say things like, well, there's this town over here called Cairo, and Cairo is the capital of Egypt, and so, I think, well, actually, it's Cairo is the capital of Egypt. I know you call that Cairo, but, but, but okay, that's the reason. And so I talked to a, a person at the historical side in Cairo who said, no, 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 no. We changed the name of our town from Somethingsboro, I forget what it was, to Cairo, because they call the area Little Egypt, and we were hoping to become the capital of Illinois. Okay? And I said, well, who would know? So finally I called Southern Illinois University. They had no idea. But a few days later, I get a phone call from a very old man. He was about 86 years old. He was an ex-history professor from Southern Illinois University. He says, kid, I understand you're trying to find out the origin of this name. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, did you find out? He said, no. He said, that makes me feel good. And I said, why? He said, I'm the only man that knows. <laughs> and I'm about to pass this on to you, and you need to understand the significance, the sacred trust that I'm giving you. He said, don't share it with everybody. You're special people, so I'm going to share it with you. <laughs> Little Egypt is named Little Egypt because I told you how bad farming was there. Well, 
They started trying to farm that area in the late 1800s, and they actually had seven years of bumper crops, followed by seven years of drought. And they started calling themselves Egyptians based on the Old Testament story of Joseph. And it just stuck. Nobody knows why, but it just stuck. And still today, my, my cousin who grew up down there played in a band that had a one hit uh, called, they were the Egyptian Combo. Everything is a little Egypt. So this team is called the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians, again, the pride and joy of Southern Illinois. There's this bar down in, in, in Cessar that's still there today. It's called Bruno's. And Bruno's was the local watering hole. Now, bars in little towns back in the 40s were not like taverns today. The, the local tavern was the gathering place for the families. I mean, you'd see kids crawling underneath the bar stools. People would bring in food. It, it was just a place where everybody gathered. They didn't have a town center, didn't have a gymnasium. They had Bruno's. Well, the Bruno's my shaft was a place. And I'll tell you... You go into Bruno's, a day where the Egyptians played, and the Egyptians won. That place was on fire with enthusiasm. Everybody toasting and cheering and talking about the Egyptians. Now, you go into Bruno's, a day where the Egyptians have lost, and everybody's cheering and toasting, excited. They're excited. They love their team because the only thing they had left, the only thing they had were the Egyptians. And somebody may say, well, they had radio. Well, yeah, they did have radio. About one in seven homes at the time in Cessar had a radio because they couldn't afford it. And in 1940, if you had radio in Southern Illinois, man, you had options. Let me tell you, you could get two stations. You could get KMOX in St. Louis, and you could listen to a guy named Skeets Yenny play the guitar all day. And Skeets, I, I always picture Skeets having a cot in the studio because the station would turn on at 6 o'clock in the morning, and Skeets would be playing the guitar and telling stories. The Cardinals would play in the, you know, during the day, like from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and Skeets would be off the air. Then Skeets would come back at 4 o'clock, and Pate would play at midnight. And they didn't have recorded you know, shows. It was just Skeets. That, that was KMOX. Now, if you got tired of listening to Skeets, you could turn to WSM in Nashville, and you could listen to the Grand Ole Opry. But other than that, it was the Egyptians. So everybody loved the Egyptians. The Egyptians were a semi-pro team, and the average age of the Egyptians was about 27 years old. These are the guys who wanted to make it in the major leagues, maybe weren't good enough, or they were up and coming, or some that actually had made it, but were on their way back down. But the average age of this team was totally and completely distorted by their catcher, Gene Moore, who was captain of the team and the star of the team. He was only 15 years old, not yet shaving. Well, if you had talent back then, just like today, somebody's going to notice. And that somebody for Gene Moore was the Brooklyn Dodgers. In 1941, they sent a scout by the name of Frank Boudreau to an old broken-down uh, field that, that they fondly called the lumber yard. And they called it the lumber yard because we, uh, the, the UE Lumber Company had donated the ground. And when you looked out in center field, you'd see a sign on the building that said UE Lumber. So they just called it the lumber yard. And that was the home place that the Egyptians played. Well, Frank Boudreau ended up showing up there, scout for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he, showed, he arrived after the game had already started. And so he didn't get a chance to talk to Gene. He just said that he pulled up, and this is still in the scouting report. He said he said, walked up between an old rickety backstop covered in chicken wire, and stood behind a catcher that I became convinced very quickly was an all-star major league catcher in his mid-twenties. He says, it wasn't until the inning ended, he flipped off his mask and turned and looked, and he said, I saw a kid, he said, who's still not shaving. So Frank was convinced this kid's going to be a star, but he was only 15 years old, and he knew that he couldn't sign a 15-year-old, so he ran back to Benton, Illinois. Benton's the county seat. He went back to Benton, Illinois, because back then you couldn't flip over your cell phone. You couldn't text somebody. You couldn't even go to a payphone booth. You went, to, you went to Benton, and you sent a telegram to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, and what the telegram said was, I'm here. I found him. He's as good or better than advertised, but he's only 15 years old. Give me instructions. An hour later, a telegram came back. If he's that good, sign him, but talk to his parents first. Well, let me tell you something. Today, with child labor laws, I mean, you're going to sign a contract for baseball. It's, it's a job. Uh, things would be a lot different. So Frank went back the next day to watch the Egyptians play again because he thought, I don't want to make this kind of decision and embarrass myself based on one good game. I want to see him play again. Gene had a better day. After the game was over, Frank walked up and introduced himself. And again, this is a very backwards community. My, my father, Gene, he now had more education than any more in our family tree. He had dropped out of the eighth grade. I mean, he had education. He had been there. You know, he'd, 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 you know, 
so much more than anybody else in the family, be dropped out to help the family on the farm and to play baseball. So Frank introduced himself to Gene. He said, I, you know, I want to talk to you about a career with the Dodgers. And, and what Gene said to him, and it was all, this is also in the scouting report, is Gene said, who are the Dodgers? And he said, well, you must have. You know the Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Well, Gene had heard of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a baseball fanatic. But he assumed that Frank must be with a local team called the Dodgers that were scouting the Egyptians. When he found out the Brooklyn Dodgers were interested in talking to him, he was speechless. So Frank told him, says, I've got to meet your parents. And they got in Frank's 1939 blue Buick, which was the only car that was blue and one of the few cars in, in uh, Cesar. And they drove over to the corner of Mulberry uh, in, in Elm Street, and Mulberry and Matthew Street, actually, in Cesar, and talked to my grandparents. Well, there they had a, an amazing revelation. Again, my grandparents had not been out of Cesar. They had not been out of Franklin County, so they didn't know anything. So Frank says, well, we'd like for your son to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. My grandfather got kind of irritated and said, why would we do that? He dropped out of school at 8th grade to help his family on the farm. He needs to be a man, not a kid playing games. Well, through the conversation, Frank found out that my grandparents thought the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Yankees, the St. Louis Cardinals were just like the Egyptians, a group of guys who got off work from the town from work and gathered to play. And the only reason that they got so much attention because they were in big towns. He had no idea people got paid to play baseball. So when Frank told him that my dad could make as much as, brace yourself, as much as $2 a day playing baseball in the minor leagues, well, my grandfather knew that that's more money than he'd ever make, you know, staying in Cesar. So three days later, Gene Moore, at 15 years old, was now the property of the Brooklyn Dodgers and was sent to St. Louis to play on the granary team. Now, in 1941, this is before World War II and before the minor league system as we know it. Minor league system as we know it, before World War II, was just a loose organization of mostly industrial teams. These were factories and, and workplaces that had teams that they gave their guys a couple bucks to play ball, and so my father was playing on their minor league affiliation, the granary in St. Louis. He was Rookie of the Year that year, had an outstanding year, again, 15 years old, playing with you know, 20 and 30-year-olds. He went home to Cesar to work on the farm again, again that winter. And uh, around December, early December, his best friend, a guy named Billy Grammer, came and got my father out of the barn, and who, he was in there shoveling, shoveling coal. And he said, well, let's go, to, let's go to the opera house. They're showing a movie there. And they were showing Citizen Kane, who was, which was the big movie that year. It was a Sunday afternoon, they went to the opera house, they watched the movie, and they're walking out, and they said that suddenly they could hear people running up and down the streets in Cesar and screaming. So they knew something was up, and when they ran out, my father's brother Ward came running up and screaming, Gene, Gene, the Japs have bombed Pearl Harbor. Those were his exact words. Well, this book has become very, very popular, uh, and, and one of the reasons is because it is so much like our lives. This is the first time in the book, and there's four times where, like this, my father's life changes forever. And it's just like our lives. Everybody here is at an age now that whether you realize it or not, you've had at least one of those moments in your life where something happened. And you didn't realize the time, maybe you don't even realize it now, but it sent your life in a different direction. And so people look at my father's life and they say, hey, in so many ways, no, I wasn't a baseball player, but in so many ways, this is my life. So my father's life was changed forever at that moment, as was everybody else's. A few minutes ago, I made a comment about women not needing an education. Women's life changed on that day more than men's life, because all of a sudden, the men were going to war, the women were going to work, and it changed the society's perspective on women. My mother dropped out of school at sixth grade, but became a Rosie the Riveter and built, built ships. So, anyway, Gene got a letter from the Dodgers just a few days later saying, look, we're not sure Major League Baseball is going to continue. We know Minor League Baseball is not going to because all the men are going to go away to war. And you're too young to go away to war, but we've made arrangements that on March 19th, your birthday, we want your father to take you to Carbondale, Illinois, to the, to the Navy recruiting station, and your father, we need your father to lie for you. You'll, be, you'll turn 16 on that day. You'll turn 16 on that day, and we need your father to lie and say you're turning 17. Tell him to take this letter and be ready to leave, because then I'm going to swear you into the United States Navy, put you on a train, and send you to Great Lakes in Chicago. There you're going to play on the United States Navy, North Africa touring baseball team. And so they said, okay. My father turned 16 on the 19th. They, got, they, uh, they actually uh, hitched a ride 
because they didn't have a car, to Carbondale. My father was signed up for the Navy, was put on a train, and here's something very ironic for me. He spent his first night at Navy Pier. Well, about eight weeks ago, I spoke at the Illinois Library Association meeting at Navy Pier, and I spoke in part of the, in, in part of the grand ballroom at the end where my father spent his first night in the Navy. I, I spoke in a room right off that, and I thought it was so strange that... You know, 60 years later, I'm standing in the room where my father, as a 16-year-old, spent his first night in the Navy, telling people the story about him and his first night there. You know, life, life is strange, but, it, but that's what it was. So my father spent his first night at Navy Pier, and, and one of the things that he told me when he was telling me this story, which is a story in itself, he says, you know, I didn't know at the time. He said, my first thought was, I didn't know Chicago was on an ocean. He said, but I looked out at that lake, and I couldn't see the other side, and the, and the most water I've ever seen in my life was the Mississippi River. He said, I was convinced I was on the coast. He said, I was embarrassed a few days later to find out, nah, that's not the ocean. So anyway, the next day my father was taken to Great Lakes where they shaved his head, handed him a uniform, and pushed him in a swimming pool. And they told him he can't get out of the swimming pool until he learns, until he proves he can swim. And I thought that was strange at first, but then he told me, he says, you know, if you're going to be in the Navy, knowing how to swim is a pretty good skill to have. You never know what it may come in useful. So he could swim because he'd learned to swim in the Keller Mining Pond in Cesar. They took him out, and that was the end of his basic training. By noon that day, they handed him his baseball glove and a baseball uniform and sent him over to meet the other teammates of the United States Navy North Africa Touring Baseball Team. Now, that sounds strange, but, but let me tell you again, baseball was life to Americans back then. Today, we send our rock stars, we send our country stars, we send our actors and actresses and our celebrities over to Iraq and Afghanistan to entertain and meet troops. They didn't want any of that. They wanted baseball. So they developed touring baseball teams made up of mostly minor leaguers because they didn't want the major leaguers to get hurt. Uh, minor leaguers who would play for these teams. So my father was sent over to North Africa shortly afterwards where he met the United States Army touring baseball team, which is made up of Yankee prospects. And they spent the war playing together to entertain the troops. Well, they, they, they had to be close enough to the front where the troops could be brought out for a day of baseball and taken back. They had to be far enough away. <coughs> Excuse me. Had to be far enough away where, you know, they wouldn't get hurt. Well, if you're gonna, if you're a ball player and you're going to war, playing baseball is a pretty good pretty good gig to have, I would think. But it wasn't all fun and games. One day going into Morocco to play a game, the army team was strafed by the Luftwaffe, and none of the ball players were killed, but se- but several of their support personnel was. Later on that same day, a mortar round got in so close to the ball field while they were playing that the center fielder in the Navy team was killed. And so it really changed their perspective. For the first time, they were introduced to they were, the fact they were in a real war. Well, as the war started winding down, at least in North Africa, the Allies had taken control, pushed the Germans out. It was time to prepare for D-Day. Well, they, the, the, you know, the powers that be thought, well, we don't have time to take a baseball team along, so we're not going to take this baseball team into Europe. We're going to send them home. So they sent the baseball team home, and all of a sudden, towards the end of the war, my father found himself in Norfolk, Virginia, with no baseball to play and no duty. He said, we, he said, we slept all day and, and partied all night. He said, until one night... He said about 2 o'clock in the morning, they just got into bed. He said they all had a hangover, or were working on a hangover, to put it that way. And he said they were woken up and arrested. He said the shore patrol told them to pack their bags, come with us, you're not coming back. And they thought it had to be a joke or something. They were taken to a Quonset hut uh, next to a train station where they were forced to sign some documents. And my father, I, I, my father using his Southern Illinois language, uh, said... They gave me a stack of documents large enough to choke a horse. Now, I don't know how large that is. I have no concept of what it takes to choke a horse or not, so I, I assumed that it meant there was a pretty big stack. And he said that he told him, so I'm not signing this until I can read it. And they said, you're signing it now or you're under arrest. So they signed the documents. Then once they signed the documents, they were told this. The United States Navy has just captured a German U-boat off the coast of Western Africa. The U-boat was towed to Bermuda, where it's being hidden. The sailors are in the room next to you. In a few minutes, we're going to load those sailors onto these, basically, cattle cars. We're going to ply with the doors and windows shut. And you're going to be in the car ahead of it, but we're also plywooding and nailing your doors and windows shut. Nobody can get out of this until you arrive at your destination and you are released. 
The documents say if you ever tell anybody where you're going, you try to contact family, you'll suffer life imprisonment in the federal penitentiary. After the war, if you ever tell anybody what you did or where you were, your life, you will go to prison for life. Your record will be erased in the time that you spend will have no knowledge of it. Well, again, they, they thought, this is nuts. We're a baseball team. You know, what could be going on here? Well, they were put in a, put in a train car. 36 hours later, the train stopped, and the doors were pried open, and they were told they were in Ruston, Louisiana. The sailors next door came out of a U-boat that was captured called the U-505. It may be familiar to some of you. It's just over here at the Museum of Science and History. And the reason there was, everything was top secret, they were told, is because with the U-505, they captured a decoding machine called the Enigma machine. But more importantly, they captured the, the code books. And the Germans believe the submarine was sunk. And so even though it's against the law, we bypassed the Geneva Convention. You have to hide these people. If any of them escape, you will go to prison for life. If any of them try to escape, you shoot them. And we'll deal with it after the war. Well, people think what's, you know, I hear the news media is talking about Guantanamo Bay and Cuba saying this is terrible, terrible, terrible. It's never happened in the history of the United States. never done this. We've done what was viewed later on as worse. We told the Germans that the submarine was sunk. They notified all the families of these sailors that they were dead. But instead, they were in Louisiana. Well, th thus is war. I, mean, I make no judgment about that, but you know that those kind of things happen. So you've got a baseball team who's guarding these German prisoners in Louisiana, and they have to keep them hidden. Well, my father, at this time, is about 19 years old. Not really as mature as he probably needs to be. You've got these prisoners who are ranged in age from 25 to 40, much more mature, much more seasoned. And my father gets the idea that, you know what? These guys are bored. We're bored. We can't play baseball. We don't have a team to play baseball again. Why don't we let these Germans out of the pen? Let's teach them to play baseball. We'll just play some baseball together. Well, it sounds like a crazy idea. But my father convinced the hierarchy that it was a good idea because if these guys weren't bored, they wouldn't be trying to escape. And where would they go anyway? They were more afraid of what they thought were alligators uh, outside in the swamps around Ruston, but they were in northern Louisiana. There were no alligators. Um, than, than they were you know, playing baseball. So they taught him to play baseball. My father and his team spent the rest of the war, which is only about nine months, playing baseball against these Germans. I, I was just in Ruston, Louisiana about six months ago. I spoke at uh, Louisiana Tech University, and I spoke to, at uh, a couple of high schools there. And there were people there, there was advertised I was coming, there were people there who came up to me that, that remember the baseball games. They said that on Sunday afternoons, they used to load up a picnic basket and go out to this big pen where they knew that there were people who spoke German. They were prisoners, they assumed, but they didn't know why they were there, and watch them play baseball against the guards. And so there were people still alive that remember that. But as the war ended, and they decided the, you know, that, that they were going to dis disband this camp, my father wanted to play one last game. They called it the friendship game. They invited everybody from town out. And during that game, again... My father's life changed forever. He was injured at a play at the plate with, with one of the German prisoners. And he broke his ankle. It was a minor break. But the Dodgers had a representative there who was watching the game who threw a fit and said, you can't, I don't want these Navy surgeons working on him. He's too valuable a property. We're going we're gonna to send him to Brooklyn and have the Dodgers surgeons work on him. Well, the Navy Dodgers got in this fight that lasted almost five weeks. In the meantime, my father sat in a cot with a broken ankle. They decided they'd move him to a VA hospital in Brooklyn so the Navy could work on him, but the Dodgers could oversee it. By the time he got to Brooklyn, almost eight weeks later, his ankle had set crooked. So the decision was made. The only decision they could make was we have to re-break it and reset it. And in re-breaking it, it shattered. They destroyed it. Ended up putting two steel plates and two, uh, two bolts into it. And a few days later, my father received a letter from the Dodgers saying, you know, your career is over. Well, this is a young man who, from his earliest memory, all he wanted to do was play baseball. He loved baseball. He walked out of the VA hospital, hitchhiked home to Cesar, walked straight into that bar, Bruno's, and started drinking and stayed there. Bruno made the comment one time uh, to, to the mayor of Cesar, who, who recounted to me. He said, you know, he said, we, he's our, all of our hopes and dreams 
were on the shoulders of that kid. We wanted him to make. We knew we were never going to leave Sasser, but through him, we could. And we were hoping he would make us like them, but instead, he became like us. And ended up walking to that bar in 1945, started drinking, and didn't leave. Until. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Late one night in 1949, long time after my father had become an alcoholic and a severely depressed man, chased off all of his friends, and was wearing a hole in the bar stool that he used to have him every night, a man walked into the bar looking for him. My father recognized his voice, and it was the voice of Frank Boudreau. The scout who came and found him in 1941 and signed him with the Dodgers was now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, came looking for him, pulled him out of the bar, sobered him up, signed him to a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and sent him to Greenville, Mississippi to restart his career. Now, I have to stop there. Because if I tell you any more, I'm going to ruin the story, and I don't want to do that. Because I'm really hoping you'll buy a book, and I read it. <laughs> you know? And if you don't buy a book, I'm fine with that. I hope you'll get it out of the library and read it. But I want you, I want you to read this story, because I think you're going to find this story has resonance with your own life. People say, is this a baseball book? And the answer to that is, no, it's not a baseball book. Baseball is a theme of the book, but it's not about baseball. And they say, well, this is a history book about World War II, and the answer to that is, no, it's not. World War II is one of the three stages it plays out upon. But what the story is, is a story about every person and the struggles we have in life and the second chances we receive and how we take advantage of them. And that's what the story is about. Now, that's not the end, though. I've got a couple of things to talk to you about. You know, being Chicago, Chicagoans, we've, we've all kind of grew up and around Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey would, would come on every day and tell a story. Then he'd get ready to go to a commercial, and he'd say before the commercial comes, he's not when you come back. I'll tell you the rest of the story. So I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Gene Moore, is, as you know, it was my father. I grew up in a little, I grew up in a little neighborhood in Kankakee, Illinois, and I was a baseball fanatic. I lived and breathed the Chicago Cubs. Ernie Banks, Ron Sano, Billy Williams. You know, I loved, I loved the Chicago Cubs. And all I knew about my father was my father, all I knew about my father was he hated baseball. I would, he was a great father. There isn't anything he wouldn't do for me. He, would, he went to parent-teacher conferences, which was very unusual at that time, you know, for a father to do that. He was involved in PTA. He encouraged me with everything except baseball. He'd always tell me baseball is a waste of time. Don't play baseball. So I grew up being a baseball nut, wanting to play baseball. My father would hide my baseball glove. He would take me to do something else. He would spend a lot of time with me, discourage me to play baseball. I would go to this little town in southern Illinois, Cesar, and I'd be running up and down the streets when we'd be staying with my grandfather. And, and one day a guy named uh, uh, Caesar Marlowe walked out and he said, Hey, you. And I was about 10 years old. And I said, Yeah. He said, Come in here. And he kind of stepped me up and had me sit on this bar in Bruno's. And he gathered everybody around. And he said, hey, everybody, this is Gene Moore's kid. All of a sudden, people flocked around. And they started telling me, your father's the greatest athlete to ever come out of Illinois. Your father was the greatest baseball player. And he's telling me all stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, you got the wrong guy. And I kept telling him, my dad hates baseball. My dad didn't play baseball. And they said, oh, your dad was the greatest you ever played. And I said, my dad hates baseball. He didn't like baseball. So I ran home to my grandparents' house. My dad was here. I said, Dad, these guys said you're a great baseball player. And he said, oh, you've been in Bruno's. I said, yeah, I have been. Uh, he, said, he said, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And I said, well, they're convinced you're a great baseball player. And he said, look, the town has 700 people in it. How good do you think you have to be for them to think you're great? And I thought, okay, I got it. So I became convinced my father was, was, was really nobody. He got a job. Driven, I mean, I loved him, but he drove a bread truck. And one day I was about 12 years old and I was late for school. And my mother said, I couldn't find socks. And I'm running around the house. She said, well, go get some socks out of your father's sock drawer. So I went to my father's sock drawer. I opened up, pulled out some socks. And when I did, I pulled out an old yellowed envelope. And it was made out to Gene Moore, uh, Sessor, Illinois. And uh, I opened up the envelope. And this letter was in it. And the letter was from the Pittsburgh Pirates Baseball Club. And it was reporting instructions. And it was telling them how happy they are that he's going to report. And reporting instructions to Greenville, Mississippi. So I walked out with this letter. And my dad was there. And I, I said, Dad, you played for the Pittsburgh Pirates? And it's one of those moments you'll never forget. He took the letter from me. And he started reading it. And I could see his eye 
touching on every word. He had this very somber look on his face. He folded up the letter, put it in his pocket, and he said, never, ever, ever ask me about this again. And so I didn't. I just knew that my dad didn't like baseball, and he might have been pretty good, but I didn't know anything about it. Until 1983, and I graduated from college in 1976. I taught high school band for a year. I was very involved in music and drum and bugle corps, and, and that, that was kind of my life because my da- father didn't want me to play sports. And I went into business with my father. In 1983, we built a business called Moore Industries. It was located in Chicago Heights, Illinois. And my father was up giving a sales meeting to a group about this big. He was 57, I was 29. And he threw up his arms. He was a very dynamic speaker. He threw up his arm kind of like this, and he stopped. And he looked at me, I was saying, Gary, Gary, take over. Well, as if I'd have a chance to take over from him. So I, I jumped up and I started, he walked out the door. Well, the meeting went on for about a half hour. I finished the meeting. I walked out into the foyer of the office and, and the receptionist said, Gary says, your mom's on the phone and she really sounds upset. So I picked up the phone with my mother and she's crying and she's screaming, why did you let your father drive home when he was having a heart attack? Well, I didn't know he was having a heart attack, so I jumped in my car, drove to Riverside Hospital in Kankakee, ran into the emergency room, and I can hear giggling and laughing. I walked in, and there was a group of nurses and doctors gathered around my father, and he's wearing a hospital gown, and he's telling jokes, and he's kind of holding court there uh, in the way only he could do. And uh, Dr. Burnett, who's our family physician, was there, and he, and, he, and he saw how excited I was, and he walked up, and he said, Gary, don't worry. He's okay. Just a little overexertion. We don't think he had a heart attack. Everything's fine. It's Okay. He said, but we have scheduled him with some t- for some tests on, on May 12th. We wanted to go to, at the time it was called uh, St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital. Now it's called Rush, I think Rush, Pres- Rush Hospital in Chicago. He said to see a heart specialist and we'll go from there. So on May 12th, it was Thursday, uh, my mother wanted me to go with my dad because she knew my dad wouldn't tell the truth if it was bad news. So I went with him. We went into Rush, or to St. Luke's and walked in to see the doctor, and the doctor was sitting there, Doctor who was a leading heart surgeon and specialist in the country. He weighed about 350 pounds. He's smoking a cigarette. And uh, <laughs> things, have changed, things, things have changed since 1983 in healthcare. And he looked at my father's charts, and he took my father's pulse. He listened to his heart. He listened to his breathing. He said, ah, you didn't have a heart attack. Don't worry about it. And that was it. So my father felt so relieved, we left St. Luke's and we went to our favorite restaurant downtown Chicago, which is George Diamond Steakhouse. It's not there any longer. in South Wabash. We went in there. And I thought, you know, I'm alone with my father. He seems happy and relieved. Now is the time I can ask him. So I sat, I sat down. I said, Dad, tell me about the letter. And he said, what letter? I said, the letter from the Pittsburgh Pirates. And he said, well, what about it? Well, he started getting angry. I started pushing. I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Finally, he told me the story that became this book about his time in baseball. I went home that night and I was just flabbergasted. I woke up my wife and I said, my, my dad was a baseball great. He played with the Dodgers. He played with the Pirates. He, and I'm telling her the story. Next morning, we go into the office. My father's there and I said, Dad, I got no more. And he says, I don't want to talk about it in front of anybody. He said, come over for dinner tonight and we'll talk about it. Well, I watched his gray Cadillac pull away. And I was very excited about getting together the next night, May 13th, to talk uh, you know, about the story. And it never occurred to me, not for a second, that that would be the last night I'd ever see my father. My father went to Chicago, suffered a series of heart attacks, drove home, which was kind of his way, walked up to the porch of his house, holding his chest, fell over, and never regained consciousness. He was only 57 years old. I was just 29. I, I, and I, you know, I didn't know what to think or what to say. Well, we went through the funeral, which was an awful thing. And the day after the funeral, I went to his drawer, and I found this letter, and I also found a purple heart. And I went to my mother, and I said, I have a story to tell you. And she said, what do you mean? I said, you didn't know this, but Dad was this great baseball player. And she started laughing. She says, I'm his wife. We've been married for 30 years. How would I not know this? And I said, well, he didn't tell anybody. She says, well... Did he tell you? I said, yeah. He says, well, now there's two of us that know it. Well, I walked around with the story for a long period of time. Didn't know what to do with it. Um, I had I'd done a lot of writing in my life, newsletters, publications, things like that. I was primarily in sales and marketing and music. And My mother started dying of emphysema in 2002, and I went to her and I said, Mom, I'd love to tell Dad's story, if for no other reason. His grandkids, his great-grandkids, they, need to deserve, they deserve to know about him. And she said, well, write it. And I said, well, 
Dad didn't want the story told. I don't think I have the right to tell it. And she started laughing. And she grabbed my arm and she said, Listen, maybe you didn't know your father as well as you thought you did. She said, Just because he didn't like to talk about himself, and he didn't, doesn't mean that he didn't love it when other people talked about him. She said, Do him a favor. Tell the story. So, that is the story that's come this book, Playing with the Enemy. Now, I'm going to go one step further than Paul Harvey and just take another few minutes because I'm going to tell you the rest of the rest of the story. Paul Harvey doesn't do that. I wrote this book, uh, and my son, who's an actor, Toby Moore, you can see him at tobymoore.com. He starred, he played Finney in a separate piece. He starred in Murder in Greenwich. Been in several movies, uh, some TV shows, Law and Order C, uh, SVU, or SUV, is it? Especially SVU. One's a car, one's a crime unit. Um, CSI Miami. He came to me and he said, Dad, he says, I think this would make a great movie. He said, I'd like to show it to my agent. And this is before it was actually published. And I said, well, sure, go ahead. I don't think anybody's going to be interested, but go ahead. A few days later, I get a call from his agent, and he said, hey, look, we think this make a great movie. We, you know, we've got some contacts at DreamWorks. Uh, Gerald Mullen, who's the head of production there, he's the Academy Award-winning producer of Schindler's List. He had, you know, and I, I'd never heard of Gerald Mullen, didn't know who he was. And he started naming all these names that I should know when I, I you know, I'm not a Hollywood kind of guy. I, I'm a Midwester. I, I like movies, but I don't read the credits. Uh, so I, it didn't mean anything to me. Well, they said, what are, your, what are your conditions? And I said, well, I only have one condition. I said, I want my son to play his grandfather. And they got kind of quiet, and they said, well, that's probably the only condition you can't have. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, he's an up-and-comer. He's doing real well, but if, if DreamWorks or United Arts, somebody like this is going to make this movie, they're going to want Leonardo DiCaprio. They're going to want somebody big in that role to sell tickets. And he said, well, even though Toby's done very well and he's up-and-coming, he's not there yet. And I said, well, that's my only condition. Well, Toby convinced me to back off from that, and let's just see what happens. And so I said, okay. About three weeks later, I'm at my desk. I'm the CEO of a company that manufactures water equipment in Bourbon Ale, or Bradley, Illinois, actually. And my phone rang, and my receptionist said, Hey, Gary, there's a, a young lady who says she's calling from Hollywood. Wants to talk to you. Now that, you know, I thought it was table first. It's not. So anyway, I pick up the phone. The young lady says, Is this Gary Moore? I said, Yes. Is this the author playing with the enemy? I said, Yes. She said, Would you hold for Gerald Mullen? I didn't remember the name Gerald Mullen. But I have Google. And so <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on hold, and I Google Gerald Mullen, and I hit enter, and all of a sudden it comes up, Academy Award winner of Schindler's List, the producer of Rain Man, Days of Thunder, Minority Report, uh, and it goes on and on and on. I thought, wow. All of a sudden, I thought, this is a practical joke. All of a sudden, this voice comes on. This guy says, is this Gary Moore? I said, yes. He says, is this the author playing with the enemy? He says, my name is Gerald Mullen. Do you know who I am? Well, I had to tell him the truth. I said, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> Absolutely. I know all your pictures, and I'm reading them off. At the, uh, you know, and he goes, well, I'm pretty impressed. Thank you. You know, I, you shouldn't, I shouldn't have told you that because I don't ever want you to tell him. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway he, said that, he said, we want to make this new movie. Here's what we're going to do. And he's, he, he's talking very, very quickly. And it's almost kind of a stereotypical Hollywood. We're going to see it big. We, you know, and he's going on and on and on. And, of course, the next line is, we need to have my people call your people, and we'll do lunch and all that kind of stuff. And, and I didn't have the nerve to tell them, I don't have people. Um, I'll try to find some people, but I, right now I don't have any. And he said, do you have any conditions? And I said, no. Which was a heartbreaker for me, because I wanted to say, if you want to make this movie, you've got to use my son. Now, that's not the right way to do it. And he says, well, we have one. He said, let me just tell you up front. He says, we have a young man. We want to play the role of your father. And we haven't talked to him. In fact, I've never met him. He said, but we've seen his work, and we think he's perfect. And if he's available and willing to play this role, says, we'll make this movie. If not, we're going to pass. And I said, okay. And at that point, I felt my heart break, because he's kind of like, you know, he just told me my son wasn't going to be in the movie. So we exchanged some small talk, and he wants the name of my lawyer. And I said, well, I'll get back to you on that tomorrow. Um... And we're ready to hang up, and he said, he says, Gary, he says, this is a strange conversation for me. And I said, why is that? He said, you've written a book about your father. I said, yes. He said, I've told you we've got a young man we want to play your father. I said, yes. And you don't seem the slightest bit curious about who that is. And I said, well, quite, quite frankly, I said, I had, you know, I had other thoughts. And he said, okay. He said, do you want to know who it is? And I said, yeah, I do. And he kind of laughed, and he says, he's a young up-and-coming actor named Toby Moore. He said, have you ever heard of him? And, of course, I, that's my son. I start dancing on the desk and thinking, this is wonderful. And I thought it had to be a joke. And he said, no. He said, look. He says, I've never met Toby. He says, the guy that I want to direct this knows Toby. He says, Toby's perfect for the role. He says, I went to, I, I've seen his movies. I love him. He says, we think he's going to be a big star. Well, since then, 
Uh, they've 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 uh, they've signed a what would be an all-star cast. And is there anybody here that's from a newspaper? Can I can I say something and have you not write it down? Okay, this would be off record because there are non-disclosure agreements. This can't go to the press yet, but I want to tell you who the rest of the cast is, but they have announced it. So it really is kind of an all-star cast. It's being directed by David Raines and produced by an Academy Award winner. So I feel very, very, very blessed. So that's that story playing with the enemy. Does anybody have any questions? If not, let me, let me do... Uh, let me tell you, they have, they have books for sale there. Uh, I think, I think you'd love the book. I hope you'll read it. But let me, let me make a little sales pitch and tell you, if you go to um, Google, type in signed copy of Playing With the Enemy, uh, there's one today for sale in San Diego for $170. Now, <laughs> I, I think that's bizarre, and I don't, th- I think that, I don't know why that would be, but, but they, they do signed copies do carry a little more value, and they have some there, and they're not going to charge you any extra, and I'm going to sign them for free. So... I think this would make an outstanding Christmas gift, so you need five or six of them. If I can be of service to you, I'll be back there. And thank you very, very much. And are there any last questions? Yes. Good. About ten years old, maybe nine, maybe eleven. But it was one of those one of those moments you're thinking, "Who are they talking about?" That's not my dad. Yeah. Yes. Yes, the book goes into detail. Uh, the Germans actually, believe it or not, there was some thought about killing them uh, as they released records now because they didn't know what to do with them because they had broken the law and they didn't want to... So what they did was they sent the Germans to Canada. Canada sent them to England and they were basically used in slave labor until 1948. Up until 1948, they were used for reparations to clean up the mess from the bombings. In late 1947, one of them escaped. They knew he was going back to Germany, so they knew they'd better tell somebody. So then they uh, had a press conference that says, yeah, we've had these guys. They volunteered to stay and help us clean up. But we're sending them home now. Yes. I have. Actually, if you go to playingwiththeenemy.com, there's pictures from the press conference where the director's in, they announced the movie. We made it right at the U505. Well, the movie is in pre-production now. They start filming in late April. They said it could be out as early as Christmas next year, but most likely February of, of 10, so about somewhere between 12 and 14 months from now. Okay. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.